1: So, guys, is the opposite of prorogation anti-rogation? And does this have anything to do with hair growth products? Hmm.
2: Is it a verb to prorogate? To To prorogate. To
3: prorogue. To prorogue. It's like a pierogi.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Or you peruse the prorogation? God, so if they hand. would just
2: speak English. <laughs> prorogation?
3: Tell the truth. Raise your hand if before today you knew what prorogation was.
2: I had never heard of the word prorogation. I didn't even know it was a word before today. I am it's just
1: pro-prorogation.
3: A, just
2: a fancy word for suspend.
3: Okay. let just say suspend.
1: Oh, just yeah. say suspend, guys. Suspend.
4: So it's like the utilize of
3: suspend. <gasps> That's bad, yes. Okay, it's so, that. so there we, there we We're have it.
1: For all you people studying for the SATs, prorogation is to suspension as utilize is to A, deploy, B, eat, C, use, or D, stop talking, Ben. <laughs> D,
3: definitely <laughs> D. Prorogue, Ben. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the What's Past is Pro Rogue edition. Oh, <laughs> I very even good. didn't tell change. you when that was going to be. That was good. I had another one too, which was the Pro Rogue is Not for Amateur Rogues edition, but I like my first one better. Yeah, I think
2: it, it was a good call.
3: <laughs> I'm Shane Harris. Uh, now I know what Pro Rogue is. I feel like I will never use it again outside of the context of talking about And this for podcast.
2: anyone else moving forward, I'm going to pretend as though they were idiots for not knowing. I'll be like, <laughs> it means to suspect and <laughs> I'm obviously uh, obviously uh, right? i'm gonna use
1: it every day <laughs> in, 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 a, in an infinitely pretentious fashion yes. i'm just going to work it into sort of like every eighth sentence
3: you should say like maybe you should try to utilize bigger words <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, i am here in the jungle studio with my good friends susan hennessy ben wittis Tamara coffin wittis and our special guest amanda sloat hi everybody Hello, hey. Amanda. Hello. Of course, you know Amanda from the Lawfare podcast and from Rational Security. You've been on at least once with us,
2: uh, at least,
3: and always. I think when it's uh, some shenanigans going on in the British Parliament, it's
2: <laughs> never good news.
3: It's not. It's not.
0: But the analytically, Brexit it keeps whisperer. us all very busy. Yes, indeed, indeed. But before
1: we get to any of that, you've been hanging out with gorillas. Oh,
0: that is true. That is true. I took a total like the apes media or the fighters. Uh, the apes. Okay. The apes, chimpanzees, and and gorillas. Yes, can highly recommend Uganda, Rwanda. Oh, they wow. share ninety eight percent of our DNA. Oh my wow. god!
3: Sometimes I think they've got the better idea.
0: They definitely just hand the reins over at this just point. Hanging out.
3: <laughs> um, and did you get to like get close to them?
0: I did. I was about as far from them as I am from you now. Oh, my God. Music. And how does Shane stack up?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Admit it, I'm more intimidating. Similar
0: in stature and threatening demeanor to the silverback I saw, yes.
1: Oh, quiet Watch out. Yeah, you, you should see him knuckle walk. <laughs>
3: oh, boy, that's not happening today. On the podcast this week, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson suspends – parliament as the Brexit deadline looms. Uh, World leaders push back, maybe, on President Trump at the G7 summit. And Trump tells aides that he'll pardon them if they have to break the law to build his border wall. So it's it's just that important. Just go ahead. We'll pardon you at the end. It's fine. Um, all right. Let's start with the, uh, I guess, the big news of the day. Uh, folks in Washington woke up to news that Boris Johnson was going to seek to, to prorogue or a prorogation uh, of the parliament. Amanda, first, just explain to us what's happening here. We know what prorogue means now. But procedurally speaking, what did Boris Johnson just do today?
0: So on one hand, this is entirely routine. If you think about this in the U.S., our Congress operates in two-year sessions because we have uh, elections every two years. And so every two years, the House starts over. And so all of the legislation that they were considering that doesn't get passed goes away and a new session starts. Because Britain has a parliamentary system, they don't have the opportunity to regularly reset. And so what happens periodically, and sometimes it's been every fall, parliament gets prorogued, which means that all of the current legislative business gets suspended. Now, this is different when parliament gets dissolved, which is what you do when elections are being held and members lose their seats and then they have to run for re-election. So this is not dissolution, this is suspension. So Boris went to the Queen and said, I want to be able Able to set out my own legislative agenda. I want to stop considering the legislative agenda from the past and I want to to have this suspension last for five weeks. So on one hand this is a normal procedure that happens every time Parliament resets essentially. So this is entirely routine. And actually, the current session of Parliament we are in is the longest that the British Parliament has had in over 400 years. The current session of Parliament has been operating since June 2017, which is when the last parliamentary elections were held. Now, the problem and the reason why everybody is up in arms is that this suspension is going to last for five weeks. Boris is saying the Queen is not going to give her speech, which sets out my new legislative agenda, until the middle of October. And so normally, this suspension lasts for about about a week. Parliament goes on recess, everything resets, and then they come back. The Queen gives a speech, sets out the Parliament's agenda, and business begins again. This is going to last five weeks, which is almost unprecedented in terms of the length of time that Parliament's not going to sit. And it is very clear that Boris Johnson is doing this, so MPs do not thwart his desire to move forward potentially with a a no-deal Brexit.
3: So he is basically... Trying to run out the clock is what it sounds like, right? It's like he's going to kind of hold on to the ball, not make a move, yeah. and, and shorten the amount yeah. of time that people who are in favor of passing legislation that would stop a hard Brexit with no deal on the 31st to basically run down the clock so they can't do that.
0: I mean, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought here. One argument is that Boris Johnson is essentially daring the opposition parties to hold a vote of no confidence in him next week. That is possible. A lot of people argue that we are now setting ourselves up for early elections. And if that was decided next week, we could end up seeing elections as early as October 17th, which would be two weeks before Brexit. God, that's even crazier, right? (laughs) The problem is – The parliamentary math did not work for Theresa May and it doesn't work for Boris Johnson. He only has a majority of one. Theresa May was not able to get her deal through. It's going to be very difficult for Boris Johnson to get his deal through. And so the certain rationale for the election is this is simply going to reset the parliamentary math. Support for the Conservative Party has gone up since Boris Johnson has taken over. Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Labour Party, is very unpopular. Uh, And so this would be a way to at least shuffle up the parliamentary arithmetic. The other school of thought is that Boris is essentially playing a game of chicken with the European Union. It's going to prevent Parliament from doing anything to stop his Brexit negotiations for the next month. He's going to try and continue negotiations with the European Union to tweak the backstop. In his ideal world, and he set this out in the letter he sent to Parliament today, he gets a changed deal on Brexit. It gets ratified at the EU summit in the middle of October. The Queen gives her speech. Parliament comes back. He jams it through in two weeks. And then
4: Brexit happens with the deal. So Nicola Sturgeon reacted to this and a number of other British politicians reacted by saying this is an outrage to the democratic process. But what you're saying is that he's using a normal procedure. He's just sort of pushing the envelope on it a bit for his own political purposes.
1: It's very Mitch McConnell of him.
4: It is in a sense. But – You know, it also makes me think about what Narendra Modi just did with the Indian constitution and just making sure that the Kashmiri parliament wasn't legally sitting at the time that he amended the status of Kashmir. So, you know, you can do something that is technically part of a normal procedure, but that has fundamentally undemocratic effects. And when I heard you just go through like what's the advantage for him here, the advantage is that he now gets a month to operate essentially without democratic accountability on this Brexit program. We should send you over there as a spokesperson for Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) But is that a correct interpretation or am I being unfair?
0: He would make the case that this gives him the flexibility to be able to engage with EU leaders over the next couple of weeks and to try and work out revisions to the agreement without the threat of parliament either trying to bring down his government or to try and pass legislation that would prevent there from being a no-deal Brexit.
4: But it's a parliamentary system. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: And the irony of all of this is that there has been a lot of claim that Brexit is all about taking sovereignty back to the UK. So there is a certain irony that in trying to reclaim sovereignty, you are going to be blocking parliament from taking action on arguably one of the biggest decisions ever facing the, the country.
1: Especially because in Britain sovereignty and parliament are not quite synonymous but they're pretty close i mean this is not a separation of powers system parliament is sovereign for all you know in all meaningful senses and so to to strip it of that even for a month and a half in order to do something dramatic as is, is a pretty dramatic step
2: and to what extent just to ask a really basic question to what extent is is Johnson backed by British public opinion, right? So, to the extent that sovereignty is reflective of, you know, democratic views and and the views of the population, how is No Deal Brexit polling? Is this sort of over the will of the people? I mean, that essentially is the fundamental question. There was a poll that I saw on Twitter this
0: morning that said about 28 percent of the British public. Su- supported the idea of prorogation. So people are not super keen on that as a mechanism. But on the question of support for Brexit, the problem is the country is completely divided. Parliament is very divided, and that reflects deep divisions within the, the public. And so what you saw even in the European Parliament elections this summer is people really moving to the opposite poles in terms of supporting parties that had very clear positions on Brexit. You know, and on Tammy's question, I mean, if you want to be super cynical on this, and you've seen some people making the the case on this. Uh, One, Parliament's already had a lot of time to try and do things to stop Parliament to take control. So some people are asking what Parliament's going to do that they haven't uh, already tried to do. The other thing is that Parliament was going to go on recess for three weeks at the end of September because all of the main political parties have their political party conferences then, their annual gatherings where everybody gets together and and makes their platforms. So in some ways, even though Parliament's going to be suspended for five weeks, it only actually reduces their sitting time by a number of days, but certainly this is a a pretty dramatic, unprecedented uh, step to take. And I was looking this afternoon. The last time the House was prorogued to get around opposition to a bill was in 1948. The labor government legislated to restrict the power of the House of Lords. The difference there was that members of the House of Commons wanted the legislation to pass and were frustrated by the opposition of parliament. So they ended the session, reset things, and then tried to get the legislation through. What's unique about this is the length of time with the suspension and the very significant political and constitutional issue that parliament is facing
3: is there a chance that if there is a, a vote of no confidence and johnson loses it that he would refuse to step down
0: yes so there's lots of questions about what would happen with a vote of no confidence. You've got members of his own conservative party that aren't supportive of a no-deal Brexit and don't want to see that happen. Uh, and like I said, he's only got a one-vote majority at the moment, and that relies on 10 members of Northern Ireland's hardline Democratic Unionist Party. So he's in a pretty precarious position in his, his parliament. Uh, but the problem is Jeremy Corbyn is quite unpopular. And so even though some people may not want to see Brexit happen, they also don't want to see Jeremy Corbyn take over. Uh, The opposition parties had met earlier this week to try and game out their strategy for stopping a no-deal Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn had said, how about I call a vote of no confidence, we collapse the government, and then you all support me in a national unity government with the express purpose of asking the EU for an extension on Brexit. This (laughs) not surprisingly, is anathema to some uh, conservative party members to be backing him, and the Liberal Democrats were opposed to that. They said, why don't we pick the mother, the father of the House, some senior established MP who doesn't have a political agenda will do the national unity thing with them. And then we'll look at going to elections. They couldn't reach agreement on a national unity government. And so what the opposition parties agreed at the beginning of this week is let's try and use legislative mechanisms to block no deal from happening. But now that Johnson has made this move today, it's essentially going to force MPs next week, I think, to call a vote of no confidence. And in some ways you could say that Johnson is essentially daring them to do so.
1: So here's my question about that. The prime minister in the form of Theresa May has asked – parliament on a number of occasions to do things, and parliament has giggled at her every time. And no prime minister has managed to get parliament to do anything fateful in this since Brexit happened. And so my question is, if you're Boris Johnson, why – Do you put yourself in a position where you are suddenly subject to now you're going to have a showdown vote in parliament? What's the basis for believing that you're going to prevail?
0: Well, you could see one of two things. One is that this is a strategy to force the EU to blink because it shows the EU that he is very serious about no deal, that parliament is not going to be able to muck things up in the next five weeks, and that the EU really needs to compromise so that when they come back after the EU summit in the middle of October, he can get this deal through parliament. I'm skeptical about that because the stuff he's wanting is stuff that the EU is not looking to do. But that's one possibility. The second is that he has new elections and wins them and it shakes up the parliamentary math and he gets a sufficient majority that he's actually able to push his own deal through parliament.
4: Right. So he has this opposition. The country is very divided on this, but he figures the opposition is more divided than his own bloc. And so if he goes to elections, he'll come out stronger and he'll be able to do what May was unable to do.
1: But does he assume if there is a no-confidence vote next week that he will hold together his one-vote majority? Or is his assumption that, like Theresa May, if you put something in front of parliament as the prime minister, or in this case something gets put by the opposition about you in front of the parliament, you're going to lose?
0: I think Boris Boris Johnson's assumption is likely that he is going to lose the vote of no confidence. There are a number of conservative MPs who are rebels and don't support a no-deal Brexit. They didn't support him as leader of the party. It's obviously a gamble because if you end up going to general elections, you could end up with a uh, labor-led government, which some people want even less than Brexit, A couple of years ago, Britain passed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And so once Boris Johnson loses a vote of no confidence, there are 14 days for other parties to try and cobble together a government. If that happens and if they are able to coalesce around some sort of national unity government led either by uh, Jeremy Corbyn or by a father of the House, then that government gets stood up. If after those 14 days you don't, then you end up going for elections. The other question uh, to go back to to, uh, what you were asking, earlier, is there's also questions if he has to hold elections when he does it. And Boris has been suggesting that he would have the prerogative to set an election date and he wants to set it for November 1st. Mm -hmm. And so then you could have a hard Brexit on October 31st and then you have the election on November 1st. The benefit of that for Boris is politically he has Nigel Farage, who is the head of the Brexit party, breathing down his neck and saying we are the only ones that are actually going to deliver on Brexit. Boris Johnson, uh, I think as Ben and I had talked about on an episode of of Lawfare, has always wanted to be prime minister. And so as much as he's going to want to deliver on Brexit, he's also going to want to stay prime minister. And so he also needs to game out when elections would be, knowing that he has Nigel Farage breathing down the back of his neck. And so Boris, I think, wants to deliver Brexit before he goes to elections. Otherwise, for the part of the country that's very unhappy Brexit hasn't been delivered, they are going to vote for Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, which could end up causing Boris
4: Johnson his premiership. Wow. Running out the clock indeed. Jeez.
3: Just a last quick question. Is this as nuts as it seems from the other side of the pond? I mean, I know parliamentary yes. democracy can get, okay, intricate and a little baroque sometimes, but this just seems crazy.
0: I, this is crazy. I mean, all of this is completely unprecedented. I mean, there's there has been discussion today about whether the Queen, for example, would put, you know, Parliament ahead of her ministers and decide to refuse Boris Johnson's request to prorogue. There's questions about if he loses in a vote of no confidence and tries to set the election date after Brexit, does the Queen intervene in that? And clearly the the Queen in her waning years of, of her reign is not wanting to get involved in messy constitutional politics. Uh, but to Tammy's point with the comment, of other political leaders, there is a question that this leads to a real constitutional crisis. And you already have the Scottish National Party and others bringing this case to to court in Scotland. And so this really is is roiling things politically, legally, and it's also, of course, having an impact on economic markets. And
2: is David Cameron just on a beach somewhere drinking a Mai Tai?
0: Yes, Okay. yes, yes. He, at least publicly, has not expressed any great remorse mm. over uh, his decision.
3: To yeah. like this fuse. Uh, I, my, if I'm writing the movie, the Queen just comes in at the last of it and just, like, slaps all their asses like a bunch of corgis <laughs> and is like, cut this out! Stop Get your it.
4: job done. Get your shit together. But, you know, once you're looking <laughs> at the queen as the deus ex machina, you know democracy is not in good
3: shape. <laughs> uh, that might actually be the death of British democracy no. if the queen has to come in. Oh, boy. God, things are looking great here, you guys.
0: So hopefully that clears everything up for sure. you. And this, oh, yeah. this
1: explains – here's your transition, tune. This explains why at the G7 – all these leaders were coming up to Trump and saying, "Mr. President, how is our things going so well in the United <laughs> exactly. States? Like, and can we, how do you have this awesome economy and, that we just?"
3: <laughs> and can we, we come live with you because it actually seems better than it is at home? Uh, but let's let's talk about the the G, the G seven in uh, Biarritz, which frankly looked lovely. Um, that was, like a yeah, from place.
4: sweltering Washington. It looked especially <clears throat> yeah, it looked- lovely.
3: Really great. Um, a lot we could talk about, but one thing, Tammy, I want to I want to start with, and while we're on the subject of Boris Johnson, there was this fascinating uh, little moment where he's having his bilateral meeting with Trump, and they're there with all of their aides, and the cameras are rolling. And Trump talks about uh, how uh, everything's going to be fine with the trade war with China. It's, you know, we're going to handle this, and they're going to, you know, it's it's all going to work out. You know, he said four different contradictory things probably about the trade war with China, but essentially, you know, tries to enlist Boris Johnson sort of by inclusion into supporting what he's doing with going head to head with China. And Johnson kind of pipes up and says, I just want to say everything you're doing with your economy is great. Happy to see that growth. But if I could register, I think he put it just a a sheep like
0: faint, sheep like (laughs) faint, Faint, sheep like, out of
3: objection. Essentially looking at the president being like, don't loop me in with this. He said, we like trade peace, and it's been very good for us for 200 years. You saw. A constant stream of this happening with the president coming out and saying, oh, we had these great meetings behind closed doors and, you know, Merkel's with me and them coming out publicly and saying, no, no, not really, in their diplomatic way and making it very clear that the president was just simply saying things publicly that weren't true and was just misrepresenting conversations that he had with leaders. On the one hand, you would expect that they have to do that. They're not going to just let his misrepresentation stand. But, Tammy, I wonder if you think, does this indicate – that the patience has worn thin of these leaders? Or should we not overread these kinds of pushbacks for anything more than maybe sheep-like notes of objection?
4: <laughs> well, I think Boris Johnson was in a particularly delicate position and therefore was particularly sheep-like. Right. But, but I think what we see from the other G7 members is an evolution in the in the way that they have tried to game out their engagement with the Trump administration. So if you look, you know, two G7 summits ago, the major American partners were in a position where they're like, oh, man, this guy got elected. He seems to have a really strong set of views. Let's see if there are ways that we can accommodate him on substance. And they tried that. And re- and at the first G7, all Trump wanted to do was be confrontational. And so they tried to accommodate and failed. Then the G7 summit last year in Canada, they all came in, you know, basically with their arms folded and said, "Okay, we're going to have a confrontation and see if we can just push back. And Trump left in a huff and got points domestically for standing up to them. So this year, I think they all came in and said, let's not have a visible confrontation. We know we're not going to get anywhere with this guy. Um, We're not going to come to agreement. But there's no percentage for us in having a public fight. Let's look like we're all friends. And so I think that's why you saw it play out the way you saw it play out. So, you know, where they have substantive disagreements, um, they tried to downplay them. And Macron, in a very creative little maneuver, I think on one major issue of dispute, which is the Iran nuclear deal, tried to actually broker a little win for Trump, um, a little symbolic win, by having the Iranian foreign minister show up on the sidelines of the summit and uh, sort of open up the possibility of U.S.-Iranian negotiations. And that possibility was open for eh, maybe three days. Um, Which is not bad, right? I mean, the Iranians
3: and Trump both signaled they might be willing to sit down and chat.
4: Right. But it, it had the salutary effect of Calming a set of tensions that had gotten to the point that it was, you know, affecting economic indicators and it was leading to the, you know, a lot of concern about an escalatory spiral in the Gulf, which we've talked about before. So it, it sort of tamped everything down without actually producing any substantive outcomes. And I think that's probably a good summary of the summit overall.
3: Amanda, one of the things that struck me to – mainly listening to colleagues of mine who were over there, uh, and it's, it's a very big picture impression, but I'm kind of curious if you had it as well. In the past, I mean, these G7 summits have been – or similar sort of gatherings of world leaders have been these places where we get – everyone gets together and we look for international consensus or ways to forge ahead on big problems. There was none of that. It was this feeling, at least from my reporters, that I heard from there that – Everyone knows the world is spinning apart. No one can really do anything about it. Everyone's got their own shit to take care of. Uh you've got Trump, you've got Brexit, you've got a German recession, you know, I know that the Brazilians weren't there, but you had the the rainforest burning and then a controversy over whether we should be talking about that and the Brazilians essentially saying how can you be talking about this when we're not at the table? I mean it it got me to just thinking that, you know, is the is the system that we've traditionally depended upon these international rules based alliances is this a moment where we looked at this and said this isn't working right now and maybe it'll come back but like did we ever got everybody in a room together for 4 days and they looked at each other and said yeah we can't really solve these problems
0: I mean I think it certainly isn't working now but I don't know if that's so much of a systemic failure as more of a a Trump difficulty in negotiating in the sense that he really wants to go it alone and doesn't want to preview his position and that makes it very difficult for other leaders to try and position themselves and if you look at a number of the problems that you were talking about especially on this issue of economy uh, potential of global recession challenges that European countries are facing some of Trump's own trade policies are contributing to that and exacerbating some of that you know tammy's summary I thought was sort of the best possible spin (laughs) you could put on that. Uh, I would characterize it more as mixed messaging. There was confusion. Zarif was a last minute surprise that Merkel didn't even seem to know about. And this was the first time in the G7's f- over 40-year history that there hasn't been a written communique. Mm-hmm. And I think some people were trying to spin this as, well, you know, it means we don't get all caught up in the bureaucratic negotiation on details.
1: because no, the G7 has nothing to say.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if their <laughs> biggest the deliverable is, you know, $20 million, which in the large scheme of things is not that much money for Brazil, and that was the only real deliverable that came out of this, uh, you know, and a little bit of discussion on, on the other Amazon and and tech giants that's not a a huge deliverable.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think you know there used to be a time when the idea of division within the G7 or then the G8 was that one member wants to invade Iraq and some members want to be part of that coalition, albeit maybe a little reluctantly. And some members think it's a really bad idea, right? But we're not arguing about the nature of the international system, the fundamental rules of alliances. And now you have a a situation where two of the leading members, one of them is Donald Trump, enough said on that. Another one is breaking up with a large group of the others, i.e. Boris Johnson, right? And they're all dealing with a situation in which I think there is no single declarative sentence that you can utter that one or more members of them won't object to. And under those circumstances, it's a really hard question, like what's the orienting principle that, that you get together to talk about? And by the way, you know, Trump's chief interest right now seems to be in whether the next year's summit's going to be held in his one of his resorts, right, and whether Russia will be invited back in, which is a fight that you kind of can't imagine that he needs to pick at this point. And so I, I do think it's not a surprise that there's no joint communique at the end of it. Like what on earth would they say other than we're marking time to see, you know, whether this this situation in which we have, you know, nothing useful to say as a group continues for more time or whether this nasty situation ameliorates.
2: I mean, I think one of the problems, though, is that they still have to wait another two years almost for Trump to go away. And so to the extent that they're
1: you're assuming he's not going to get reelected. They they can't make that. But this is what
2: I'm saying. Right. So, So if you're the other members and you're saying, okay, are we basically we've tried everything we've tried, you know, accommodating, we've tried confronting, you know, none of these tactics are really working for us. Basically, we're just marking time and we have to wait this guy out you know, as much as in the United States, we're now turned to the next election and sort of domestic politics are moving there. We're still a really long ways off. I, I do think, though, your, your point is right, that if he wins reelection, it seems impossible that this, that this sort of strategy could just continue.
4: I want to suggest, though, that the issues that you guys are raising are a little too personality focused. And I think that we have to take a step back and ask, why is the G7 important? Um, And I would make the argument that structurally, it is less and less important, regardless of who is running the countries that make up the membership of the G7. This group, this this gaggle of, you know, large developed economies came together as a group because it represented a massive portion of the global economy. I think it was over 70%. And it's less than 50% today. That's a structural change, OK? It, it Just was, kick Italy out. It was at the zenith of its power in terms of international agenda setting on things like development, trade, climate change in a period that uh, was congruent with the period of American global hegemony. That's ended. So <laughs> – I mean, why would we expect in the current global environment this group of seven countries to be able to set an international agenda on anything, even if it did agree, even if it did have a set of individual leaders who were more congenial or diplomatic or collegial?
0: I mean, I, I certainly agree they're all facing their own collective challenges. The one comment that I was going to make, which is perhaps personality based, but was to push back a little bit on on Ben's point, I think we have to be somewhat careful about putting Boris Johnson in the same category as Donald Trump. I mean, they both have crazy hair and they both use populist rhetoric. Uh, but I don't think Boris would have taken hugely different positions at the summit from what Theresa May would have done. Uh, he certainly was championing Brexit, but he is implementing the results of a referendum that were voted on in the country. So that's not entirely him. Uh, And also to go back to what Tammy was talking about earlier with his positions on things, everybody was watching to see how Boris was going to align himself, whether he was going to try and cozy up to Trump because the U.K. needs to have this trade deal with the U.S. post-Brexit or whether he was going to stay more aligned with European leaders. And if you look at things like uh, China and Iran and climate, he was much closer to the rest of Europe than he was to Trump. And so Trump really was the one that was primarily out of sync with some of the other leaders.
1: Yeah, just to be clear, I didn't mean that Boris Johnson and Trump are similar, although they are similar in certain respects. I merely meant that seven is not a large N. And when you have one that is Donald Trump that's kind of at odds with the others about everything, and you have another one who is busily breaking up with the others, five of the other six on – you know, major issues of sort of geopolitical alignment. It's hard to look at this and say, like, well, what's what are the areas that you're going to get all seven of these countries to really speak with one voice about? And so my only point is I don't think it's surprising that you don't end up with a sort of powerful communique that says we're all committed to X, Y, and Z, because I don't actually think they are all committed to the same things.
4: Well, and I guess what I would say is that Trump and Boris Johnson – Or Trump and Brexit, um, to be more precise, are merely exacerbating factors in what was already a swift decline of influence of this group of countries.
3: You might say there's a wall between them that they have to overcome.
4: Oh.
2: See what you did?
1: Yeah. <laughs> See
4: what you yeah. did there. Is it painted black?
1: Oh, and God. are you going to build it and make Mexico pay for it? It actually
3: is. Um, we're going to let Amanda go, though. If she doesn't, if she, if she, she's not going to have to suffer <laughs> through no. this any longer. Bye, Amanda. <laughs> Bye, Bye, guys. That, uh... Thank you. All right. So I'll just read the lead here from uh, Scoop. This was in the Post yesterday, Tuesday, by my colleagues Nick Miroff and Josh Dossy. President Trump is so eager to complete hundreds of miles of border fence ahead of the 2020 presidential election that he has directed aides to fast-track billions of dollars worth of construction contracts, aggressively seize land, private land, and disregard environmental rules, according to current and former officials involved with the project. He has also told subordinates – worried subordinates that he will pardon them of any potential wrongdoing should they have to break laws to get the barriers built quickly, those officials said.
2: Oh, don't worry. According to the White House, J.K., just kidding. Just kidding. just, he was just kidding. kidding around. He was joking. So He's Susan, such a
4: funny guy.
3: I want to start with you on this, Susan. Let's just start by getting something straight. If the president tells you to do something that you know is illegal, A, can you go ahead and do it? And B, can a defense be he told me it was okay because he would pardon me later? <laughs> No, Things they don't teach you in law school.
2: (laughs) Um, Things they don't really teach you in law school. Um, No, so ordinarily when we're talking about like refusing an illegal order from the president, we're talking about in the military context. Um, You know, no, for something like this, when the president, the president isn't, what he's basically saying is you can go ahead and break the law and I will solve the problem for you later by pardoning you. And um, formally pardon is an affirmative defense. So if you were charged for something, you could bring your pardon to court and that would be your affirmative defense that you've been pardoned for. It. You know, look, can he do this? Yeah, probably, right? So you can't pardon any, uh, you know, you can only pardon past crimes. You can't formally, um, formally pardon things that are going to happen in the future. But this idea that he can sort of dangle pardons, and it, you know, if somebody actually were to break the law and he was to issue a pardon, would that be a valid pardon? I think the answer to that question is probably yes. This is a hugely broad power and yet it is a grotesque abuse of the office. It is certainly squarely at the molten core of impeachable conduct. It's like exactly the kind of textbook abuse of power violation, not just of the oath of office, but of the constitutional requirement to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. The idea that this isn't even the first time we've seen the president engage in this behavior even related to immigration. There were prior, there's been reporting months ago that that he made a similar offer to Kevin McAleen about sort of ICE enforcement issues. And th- where the Democrats today are just kind of like, it's just another headline and we're, and we're just kind of shrugging. You know, th- there's there's no oversight aimed at bringing people in, actually getting to sort of the the fact of the matter. Did the president actually say this? Starting to construct sort of some efforts to uh, explain that this is unacceptable. It's just like another kooky line in another crazy piece about the president buried by his larger crazy plan about this wall. So I
1: actually think you're, uh, if I can do say so myself, Susan, you're radically understating the problem here. (laughs) And So look, I think it's worse than that. The president is soliciting people to conduct illegal activity and is clearly cognizant of the fact that the requests he's making are not lawful because he's promising them a pardon if they happen to violate a criminal law in carrying it out. Now, if you think about it just in terms of conspiracy, an agreement between two people to do something illegal is a conspiracy if one of them takes a single step in the pursuance of that. The steps they are contemplating are flagrant violations of people's constitutional rights, i.e. their property rights, their, their, you know, various things. And I would be surprised if there are not at least, you know, generally if – Susan comes to me and says, I'm going to build on your property without your consent and I'm just going to seize your land in order to do it. There would be some, you know, some substantial legal and perhaps criminal law consequences to trying actually to execute that. And so if you're the president and you're saying to your staff, go start building Pay no attention to people's constitutional rights. And by the way, if you happen to violate a criminal law, I'll pardon you. I think in those interactions, you have pretty clear articulation on the president's part of the cognizance of the illegality of that, which is important to the to the sort of se enter requirements of various statutes. And I don't see how it does not raise questions. At least, you know, whether they whether this does constitute an illegal conspiracy of some kind, depends on a lot of factors that we don't know. But I don't know how it doesn't at least raise the question.
2: And there should be a special counsel appointed to (laughs) investigate.
4: (laughs) So I, I hear what both of you are saying on the legal side. And I have to say that as a citizen and someone who cares about the rule of law, it is deeply, deeply upsetting everything that you're saying. I'm also thinking about it, though, from the perspective of why is it that the president is willing to push so far and so hard on this particular issue? And why does he think that despite that degree of kind of blatant illegality, um, that this is a good idea for him, that it's a winner for him? And it, it takes me back to it was just a few months after the inauguration. There was a photo of Steve Bannon and someone else in a White House office and on a board behind them were a bunch of post-its with all of Trump's campaign promises do you remember that yep and you know it was clear that the that the White House staff was set up to document all of the crazy ideas that he had put out on the stump and to make those real and that that was how Bannon was defining his job now Bannon is long gone from the administration But it's clear that build the wall is something that Trump feels accountable for in front of his base – and the reporting and the story is that he talks all the time about how the people at his rallies mention it and chant, build the wall, build the wall. And that's what they expect him to do. And it almost sounds like he's afraid to disappoint them. It's not just that he's proud of it. It's not just that he thinks it's the most urgent policy priority. It's that he's afraid to disappoint his base on this particular issue. And that, to me – is interesting because on the one hand, it reveals a political vulnerability. On the other hand, I think it's a really important reminder of what led one of the things that led to Trump's election, which is that he promised to come to Washington, throw out the rule book, break all the China and get things done. And so in a perverse way, the fact that he is willing to tell his aides I don't care what the contracting rules are. You violate the law to get this done and I will pardon you. That probably sounds pretty good to some people who think that Washington is broken and they sent President Trump there to get things done. Now, if I were sitting in a room with those people, I would say to them, well, sure, that sounds good in theory, but he's not just doing this to hasten the building of the wall. He's doing this so that he can award sweetheart no bid contracts to a firm in the congressional district of a particular ally on the Hill, which is also, by the way, in this story. You know, so there's corruption here. This isn't about getting things done, it's about lining people's pockets. And that's why government has rules. But that's A conversation that I
2: suspect Donald Trump would win and I would lose. Yes, I think that is a really important point. This has been an utter abject failure of his presidency. This one big symbolic thing that he wanted to accomplish – he couldn't get it funded when republicans controlled both houses of congress he certainly can't get it funded now he has to go through these sort of ridiculous clawing money from the pentagon you know trying to to cobble together raiding ice funds all these you know sort of bizarre machinations to, to build this wall but really because he has Utterly, completely, and personally failed on the politics of it. And so I think you're right that there is probably some level of outright desperation here because this is such a complete failure. Now, a complete failure of a pretty boneheaded idea in the first place. You know, that said, Tammy, just listening to you sort of recount. The, the the corruption elements of it and the illegality and sort of Ben's point on conspiracy. And this is a bombshell story. It is administration ending in any sort of ordinary earth timeline that, that we all should be on. But we don't live
4: and, on ordinary
2: but, earth. And yet it's like it is. It's like it's barely a blip. And so it's like it's once again a moment that sort of invites us to step back and say... Like, what the hell, man? If this story is not getting breakthrough, if it's not getting more than a few outraged tweets, it's not spurring meaningful oversight, meaningful investigation, like, where are we? How do you constrain a president that's acting this way? So
1: just to highlight the point I was making before, I want to read a little bit of the Washington Post story. And let's just assume for a moment that the Washington Post is actually – telling the truth here, which I actually assume to be the case. Here is what the Post reported. With the election 14 months away and hundreds of miles of fencing plans still in blueprint form, Trump has held regular White House meetings for progress updates and to hasten the pace, according to several people involved in the discussions. When aides have suggested that some orders are illegal or unworkable— Trump has suggested he would pardon the officials if they would just go ahead, Aides said. He has waved off worries about contracting procedures and the use of eminent domain, saying, take the land, according to officials who attended the meetings. Don't worry, I'll pardon you, he has told officials in meetings about the wall. So he has, in other words, said, just move ahead and do it. Don't worry about seizing private land. Just take it, get it done, and to the extent that you end up violating any criminal laws showing he's actually conscious of that possibility, I'll take care of that. There is a word for illegally seizing somebody's land. It's theft. Right, and the government well, doesn't ju- just and they
2: talk not... about it in
1: the Constitution. Okay. Right. Can we can
4: we also though note that even if individual federal officials who violate the law get pardoned, that doesn't mean that the government is off the hook when it does things that break the rules. So if I'm a contractor who loses out on a contract under this streamlined BS non-process or if my land gets seized under eminent domain and I feel that I'm not getting fair market value or that there wasn't due process, these are people who get to sue the government. The government is gonna be liable to correct these mistakes, to pay for these mistakes, to and, and to be constrained in the future as a result of these mistakes. So individual officials may get off scot-free, Trump may be able to pardon them But the government is still going to face the consequences of this, maybe under a future administration. So I understand Trump doesn't care about that. I even understand that the officials who are being asked to break the rules might not care about that. But we as Americans should care about that because it's our tax dollars that are going to pay those bills.
2: And speaking of waste of tax dollars, I mean, Tammy, you made the joke earlier about are we going to paint the wall black? No, they are painting the they wall black. They are painting the wall black <laughs> at an additional cost of 70 to $133 million. Do you know how expensive high-quality paint is these <laughs> days? I mean, <laughs> seriously. And they're
1: using lead paint, <laughs> well,
2: wait, Basically because of the president's aesthetic sensibilities. He likes the way black works looks, and because it looks makes forbidding. it hotter, and so it'll be more painful to touch. Now, you might think, okay, that seems to have some functionality, but at the same time, the president has ordered DHS to remove this, these smooth steel plates that are at the top of the fence that actually are supposed to be there to make it impossible to climb, because he thinks they are, quote, unseemly. So, like, basically, we are you spending... he really used the word unseemly? Hundreds of millions, <laughs> well, quote, the Washington Post <laughs> yeah. quote was unseemly, but Spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these bizarre aesthetic sensibilities of the president—I mean, this is like just unbelievable waste and foolishness, and and just the antithesis of good government. And yet, nobody blinks an eye at it. It's just like, well, of course he wants the stupid wall painted black. Might as well paint it purple. Like, what difference does that make at this point? <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars sort of down the down the drain before we even begin to talk about the sort of the litigation costs and oh by the way the wall does not effectively achieve its stated purpose in the first instance bipartisan border security experts agree that if you want to reduce illegal border crossings building this stupid wall is just about the dumbest way to go about it and like when we total this all up and talk about the fact that we're rating the Pentagon budget for this stuff. Three billion dollars. The The Secretary of Defense is prepared to basically fork over to this border wall. You know, Mexico is not paying for this wall. The American taxpayer is paying it. FEMA's budget is now, the uh, the Trump administration is eyeing gutting FEMA's budget going into hurricane season, right? The people who are going to pay the price for this thing are Americans who find themselves in post-disaster situations when FEMA hasn't uh, been properly resourced?
3: But the wall will be beautiful.
2: The wall will be beautiful, and and I I agree with all of that,
4: Susan. And I f- I find this profoundly disturbing, and yet I think that people who think like you and I are not are not winning the political argument about this because it's too complicated because they don't have other good answers to public concerns about immigration for whatever reason, you know, or maybe just because Americans don't sufficiently um, value legality, you know, and legal process as a way of getting stuff done in Washington. But but we're losing this political argument. And so we can be upset that Congress isn't doing oversight and they haven't impeached the President for what's clearly impeachable conduct yet. But I think that there, you know, there is a an argument to be made to the American people that has not yet been made and won.
2: And I think that's the frustration. I agree that um Democrats are losing this argument. But they also aren't even making it anymore. They aren't even trying to make it. And you can't win if you don't at least try to make the case for how what a really, really severe violations this stuff is.
3: All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Hopefully more hopeful and optimistic things. I have two. Who has object lessons this week? You have one? You want to go first name
4: So my object lesson is a, uh, a short video clip, which I will put on our show page. So today, in the wake of um, some Israeli airstrikes on supposed Hezbollah drone factories in uh, Lebanon, today the Lebanese army, for the first time, shot at Israeli drones operating along the border. And um, when this news came out, it's it's in the context of a sort of heightened tension between Israel and Iran and Hezbollah and a heightened pace of Israeli airstrikes against Iranian and Hezbollah targets in Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. And so it kind of hit the news really fast um but what's what's striking about this clip is that you know this was seen immediately as an assertion by the lebanese armed forces of its of the sovereignty over its territory, its willingness to take aim against the Israeli military, and it's basically like a guy with an m sixteen. You know, firing a
3: few rounds off. A little underwhelming. Yeah.
4: (laughs) And you can hear, like, a mom and a kid in the background. And the mom is saying, like, come inside. He's shooting at an airplane, honey.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wear your protective goggles.
4: Right. So this is, like, the theater of
2: the absurd that is the Middle East. Wow. Uh, Susan. I have an object lesson. And it is... A party invitation. Oh, but not one that I've received, but one I hope to receive. I would really like to be invited to the Barr family holiday party. Oh yes, set to take place at the Trump Hotel this December, because the budget for said party is thirty thousand dollars, and. I don't know about your guys' families. I mean, I've been to your holiday party, and it is very swanky, Shane. <laughs> um, but, but I don't know that you're laying out anything close to that. And I just want to see. I'm also see you,
3: I did it at home. I didn't have to rent it. What a so.
2: 30 grand worth of eggnog even looks like. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. But that's and the like thing, open sushi
4: bar? What is that? And you that? know
3: the thing of that party is, is if you go and it's like some lame-ass like cheese puffs and like Jim Beam and rail liquor, oh no. Uh-uh. No, oh no. no. Uh-uh. And you're like, oh really? This is what $30,000 gets you? Like, I think he's going to have to spend more. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all we know, that was like the basic, the basic catering. Yeah,
2: he's, he agrees to pay a minimum of $31,000, even if he cancels the party. <laughs> It's like, Bill Barr, have it in my house. I'll charge you a (laughs) fraction of that (laughs) And I'll charge you $2,000. To whom is is Bill Barr
1: paying said $30,000?
2: He's walking the check right down the street to pay it to the president of the United States personally. Because, again, on the theme of this episode, that's a thing you can do. Walk a few blocks down from the White House and pay the president of the United States money personally. Whether it's a hotel room or a ballroom or a cheeseburger,
3: do you think if, like, Attorney
2: General, foreign <laughs> government, rodeo clown, come on in, he'll take your money. Awesome. Do you think if
3: like thirty days go by and Barr hasn't paid the tab yet, like the next meeting he has with Trump, he's like, by the way, I have an overdue notice for you. I'm gonna need you to get this immediately. <laughs> If the late coming, fees are
2: mounting. The late
3: fees are mounting, Bill. It's very bad. They's going to charge you a lot. I hope you enjoyed the shrimp. Um, I have two object lessons, uh, one which we failed to get to actually in the podcast, uh, but I'm just going to recommend that people go read the essay by former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, retired General Jim Mattis, in the Wall Street Journal. He has a book coming out. Um, there are actually some very quotable passages from it. I mean, look, Qu- the op-ed quotable, itself— Quotable?
2: Maybe. Okay, listen. Meaningful? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> I mean,
3: it's underwhelming, let's just say. I mean, there are a lot— last... A
2: profile in—
3: <laughs> I mean, there like – there are parts where I thought like, you know, A, just please go ahead and use the word Trump. I know you're afraid to. Uh, and B, I found myself saying, you know, hmm, if you'd said these things when you were in office, I don't know. Maybe it would have been different. Although maybe it would have been impossible. Who knows? Um, but I did think there were some sort of, you know, points that were apropos over discussion of the G7 and uh, uh, politics uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, and it's like, – you know, yeah, he's a pretty good writer. he, he has some things to say.
4: Yeah. Yeah, look, I think he's always been an eloquent guy and yeah. he he clearly has a set of principles that that pulled him back into public service and he explains that. I appreciated that. Um but I you know, I think there's a huge difference between what you would expect him to say while he's in office and what you would expect him to say in his memoir. For sure. Now that he has left.
3: Then I'm fairly certain about this that you are not going to hear him saying anything about Donald Trump when he is on Wall to wall talk shows and which, uh, and interviews. What
2: a waste of all of our time!
3: All right, so I rescind it as an object lesson. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's an
2: unobject. I'm lesson. totally
3: unobjecting that thing. Forget it. <laughs> Go read it if you want. But the actual object that I want to share this is sort of national security adjacent because it's about a member of the president's family. I want to recommend a new t- podcast uh, from Luminary, which is this very interesting new kind of. Subscription, Subscription But there's a lot of free stuff on there, too. And yeah. I think this is one of them, actually. Uh, a new anthology series they're going to do called Tabloid. And the first one is The Making of Ivanka Trump. Uh, and it is hosted it – it's done in coordination with New York Magazine uh, and reported and hosted by uh, a reporter named Vanessa Gregoriadis, who is – as she relays out in the beginning of the first episode kind of of Ivanka's social class, I guess Vanessa's father had a lot of money and then lost it. But she knows the world that she moves in and she knows all of the sort of the people in that world in New York. Like she knows the people who control who gets invited to dinners and who does which parties. And she knows all the people who run the gossip columns. And it just has this like frothy – kind of vividness, and it's just kind of, like, snappy and electric, like, basically trying to figure out her whole thing is. And she has this, like, wonderful way of speaking where she starts off saying, like, the Ivanka Trump that people knew in New York is nothing like the one that you see now. And it's just really fun. And she's basically just like, I'm going to find out what happened. Ivanka Trump and posits the idea very early on of whether she is running for president and it's just it's fascinating it's gossipy it's very tabloidy it's fun and it's actually very deeply informative and if you're looking for something that gets into Ivanka Trump as an actor in this administration and what motivates her and how her background and her relationship with her father shaped her for this. Very important role that she does have now as an advisor to the president. Um, I highly recommend it. Tabloid, The Making of Ivanka Trump. Check it out. It's highly entertaining. And that brings us to the end of this highly entertaining episode. So nice to be back with everybody. You're back and
4: full of vim and vigor.
3: Sure am, or something else.
4: Piss and vinegar. (laughs) Whatever.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Rational Security (laughs) is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find Rational Security uh, Vinegar. Uh, and other assorted sauces at Lawfare Sauce Store.
1: Yeah, that's it. Shouldn't have been listening. <laughs> very... Sorry, I, I was just texting. Uh, texting at Crime A Day what criminal laws forbid the government with consciousness of illegality oh. seizing private land. <laughs> you know, and I'm I inspired by this episode. And so heads. I will, next week, my object lesson will be whatever Crime A Day responds. Nice. I look forward to that.
3: Um, you can find us on Facebook, of course. You can and follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. When you download the podcast, please do remember to leave us a nice rating interview. review. It helps us out a lot. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show was produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> Just do it. Donald Trump and his new solo George Michael tribute band G1 what instead of g7 <laughs> g1 the pro right oh, i'm not it's not okay oh, but you know yeah. what i'm owning it okay i'm owning it yeah and sophia doesn't it, have to have anything to do with it it's mine <laughs>
4: she's not gonna touch that one
3: it's all mine <laughs> on behalf of my good friends ben Wittis, to mark and Wittis and susan hennessy thanks for listening and thanks to amanda sloat for joining us we will talk to you next week bye bye